In the gospel lesson for today, Jesus sends his disciples into the towns and villages of the countryside with the task of replicating the work that they've already seen him do, works of compassion. If we were to read the ending of Matthew 9, the chapter that immediately precedes our scripture for today, we would learn that Jesus observed crowds of people who were troubled and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He felt like there just wasn't enough Jesus to go around, and so he equipped helpers. The church calls this story, in a rather self-limiting way, the commissioning of the Twelve. If you're like me, you might at first hearing find the world portrayed in the story totally alien. I hope to help us see it is relevant for today because we are also disciples of Jesus and we are still empowered and expected to do Jesus' bold, compassionate work today. Healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers and throwing out demons, who us? Impossible. I watched too many episodes, I think, of Mission Impossible with my dad growing up because I can't shake the sense of similarity between Jesus sending out the 12 and Jim Phelps, played by Peter Graves, hearing the commanding voice on the tape. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and throw out demons. Should you or any member of your team be caught, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your existence. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. I'm hoping that those much younger than I can relate to this comparison with reference to the Mission Impossible movies starring Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt. Because I'm familiar with the TV show, I expect certain things to happen next. First, the leader assembles a highly talented team, each with a special area of expertise, spanning a wide array of skills and knowledge and technology, communications, munitions, acting, athleticism, disguises, and linguistics. They all share uncommon bravery and cool heads in tense situations. The next thing that happens in the Mission Impossible films is the leader equips each team member with powerful gadgets of all kinds, including tiny earpieces that allow each member to receive up-to-the-minute instructions. Finally, the leader lays out exact instructions about what the team needs to do and say in precise order to pull off their defeat of the latest evil plot threatening the free world. Shortly after naming the impossible mission, Jesus is astonishingly off script with Mission Impossible. Jesus seems to choose his Mission Impossible team solely based on the qualification that they're willing to follow him, listen to his teaching, and watch him do his work. Unlike the powerful and creative gadgets and armaments given to the Mission Impossible team, Jesus strips away all the defenses that the disciples might want as they go out among strangers to tackle all kinds of situations of despair. They are not to take money, extra clothes or shoes, walking stick or food. They are not to expect payment for any service they give and only have permission to receive what hospitality might be offered them. 
All of the above is counterintuitive to me. But what surprises me most about Jesus' instruction to his disciples is how little he actually tells them what they are to do in order to accomplish their purpose. Heal the sick? How? Lay hands on them? Pray certain words? Mix dirt with spit to make blood, uh, mud and lay it on their eyes as Jesus once did to give a blind man sight? Raise the dead, really? I can just see the disciples talking amongst themselves. Does anyone remember exactly how he brought that little girl back to life? Casting out demons? Where do we start? You get the point. Jesus gave no specifics, not even basic operational principles. So how did Jesus equip the disciples? The most straightforward answer, I think, and faithful one, is that Jesus called the disciples to a ministry of sharing truth and encouraging honesty in a spirit of peace rooted in faith in God. He tells them to announce everywhere they go that the kingdom of heaven has come near, which simply means that God's rule, life and society ordered according to God's priorities, is almost here. Jesus' righteous and compassionate life and ministry was evidence of this truth. The only equipment it mentions Jesus giving his disciples is authority over unclean spirits to throw them out and to heal every disease and sickness. Truth has an authority of its own. When I realized that the authority of truth is the main equipment that Jesus gave his disciples to do their work, it made so much sense of why Jesus stripped them of some of their other tools. They were not to take money. Truth can get so distorted when the truth teller becomes motivated by profit for him or herself. They were not to take extra props with them, nice clothes and shoes. Truth doesn't need to be dressed up to make it more palatable. They were not to take even a walking stick, which could be used or seen as a weapon. Truth has a weight and force of its own that coercion or violence will undermine. The disciples were to proclaim truth, encourage honesty, and remain in any house that received a message of peace. And if the house did not receive it, they were to shake the dust of that place off them as they left it behind. Don't take it personally. The truth is not bound up in anyone's ego. Jesus wanted to make sure the disciples shared truth with motivation that was God-centered and not self-protective. We've been in the midst of a film um, discussion in the church and small groups on the film, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, about uh, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' relationship with a reporter and how it changed both of their lives. All of the stuff I've been discussing about the scripture seems kind of abstract, but the film, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, shows Fred Rogers and his redeeming relationship with Lloyd Vogel and his family. And it gives an illustration of a ministry of truth-telling in a spirit of peace 
rooted in trust in God. In fact, truth-telling in a spirit of peace rooted in trust in God is the hallmark of Mr. Rogers' redemptive work both on the set of his children's show and in his life. Mr. Rogers tackled real subjects sometimes seen as too frightening or ugly to discuss with children on the show. War, divorce, death. Because he believed that he could best equip children to manage life in a complicated world by honestly and kindly creating an opening for them to name and express their feelings. What becomes clear as Mr. Rogers opens up those topics for children is that many adults prefer to avoid difficult topics as well, including their real feelings. Oh, we may think we're expressing our feelings well, keeping it real. It's easy enough to complain and to be angry. But oftentimes, those expressions are an easy way to shrug off deeper feelings that are actually more threatening, like fear and deep hurt, resentment, grief, and disappointment. It's not that naming and knowing our real feelings provides answers to how to solve our vexing problems, but failing to name and express our feelings or any difficult truth distorts our ability to think and relate to one another and to reality forthrightly and compassionately. In the movie, uh, Lloyd Vogel is a hard-hitting reporter with a well-earned reputation for exposing the underside of the people he covers. Lloyd would almost definitely have prided himself on being a truth-teller, but he is not. The problem with Lloyd is not that he lies. It's that he presents partial truth as the whole truth. When Lloyd started talking with Mr. Rogers in order to write a story on why he was a hero, which was the assignment from his magazine editor, Lloyd kept trying to find dirt or unworthy motivations in Mr. Rogers. He couldn't believe that he really was the person that his character presented on the TV show. As he got to know Mr. Rogers better and saw his fundamental decency, Lloyd started thinking of him as a saint, going from one caricature to another. People were all good or all bad to Lloyd. Lloyd rejected his father, Jerry's, attempts to reconnect with him and his sister because he couldn't believe that someone who had treated him and his mother so badly could possibly have any good motivations for seeking the relationship. The pain and anger he felt at his father's abandonment of his family while his mother was dying of cancer kind of locked him into categorizing people as either saints or sinners. Fred Rogers encouraged Lloyd to think of ways that his father had had part of helping him to be good. It can be comforting in a childish way to think of others as either all good or all bad because then we can put them in a neat box and think that we know exactly where we stand with them. But that is rarely honest. It can also be comforting to think of other groups of people as all good or all bad. But that is rarely honest. I thought one of the most telling ways that Fred Rogers 
discipleship of honesty about feelings and reality was evidenced was through his life of prayer. What do people of faith do when we are honest with ourselves about the reality of pain, suffering, injustice, and our feelings of powerlessness? We pray, we pray, and as we humbly open our hearts to our need for God and our longing for God's kingdom, God works, not always in the way we expect or would choose, but God works to heal, bring new life, restore community, and vanquish evil. Will you trust God as the source of all healing and life and pray when you're feeling despairing or weary or lonely? Will you reach out to others of God's people when you need to hear a word from God? The one message I hope I can take away from this scripture for today is that modern disciples of Jesus should be passionately committed to being truthful with ourselves and others truthful about moral and spiritual truth, about facts, about feelings, about science, about the complicated nature of reality, about ourselves. And just as committed to encouraging and listening to the truths that others share and then seek peace rooted in faith in God. We live in a time of rapid changes and it can be frightening. My son sent me a text two days ago. What is happening? A few seconds later, is the world ending? I wasn't sure if he was joking, but it seemed a real enough question that I did what a person of my generation does, which is pick up the phone rather than write a long text. I was relieved, really, that he broke the ice and put some of my anxieties into words. We had a good conversation. And having those anxieties acknowledged makes it easier to pray. It also makes it easier to be thankful for the responsible truth-tellers among us. I'm thankful that our governor, DeWine, listened to scientists, acknowledged the truth about our public health crisis, and asked everyone to pitch in together to take action. It reminds me that truth doesn't have a political party and that facing reality alone makes it possible to respond as disciples do. Disciples are not afraid to face reality and then pick up Jesus' compassionate work. No doubt, there are some big challenges ahead for our society. We will need to sacrifice time, money, and talent to help those who are most vulnerable in upcoming days children, the elderly, persons who work, whose work and means of support are interrupted, college students without permanent housing, healthcare workers on the front lines, and others will have extra needs. In upcoming weeks, it may seem like we have a mission impossible, but the good news is that unlike the TV show, where the secretary disavows the mission if anyone fails or is detected, Jesus reminds us that God always has the back of his disciples. Even when it may seem like the world is all out of whack, 
Jesus reminds us that God hasn't checked out. This is still God's world, and God is still love. Thanks be to God. Amen.